everyone, and thanks for tuning into this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a non-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to Scope of Practice. My guest today is Kapil Nair. He is a licensed professional counselor in Arizona, and he and I have had conversations in the past where we've talked a lot about um, uh, credibility issues in the field. It's kind of something that's really important to me and to him as well. And today we want to spend some time and we want to talk about a study that was formally published in July, a Cochrane Review of, of AA and 12-step facilitation, um, and, and kind of some of the press around it and what people are saying. Um, and really our goal is to give you kind of a critical view of, of what's going on, um, you know, with the study and what it's saying um, and kind of what you won't really get anywhere else. Cap, good morning, good to see you. Good morning, thank you for having me on. Well, I'm glad to have you. Um, you know, you and I have talked briefly about the the this study. And just for our listeners, I want to say what a Cochrane Review actually is. A sure. Cochrane Review is really a meta-analysis, which is research on research. Um, they looked at the results of 27 studies and kind of came up with, with um, some uh, results and conclusions about uh, what those 27 studies said. And I really just want to start with a headline that was the first drew my attention to this. Um, and this was posted by a lot of people that I know on LinkedIn. This was a headline from Stanford Medical School to talk about the study. And really what it says, it is what Stanford says is, if I can find that. And there goes my dog. What it says is very shortly, Alcoholics Anonymous is the most effective path to alcohol abstinence. And people were touting that on social media as the be-all and end-all of the situation. And in reality, we know the study doesn't even say that. Correct, yeah. Um, there's a host of things that were kind of concerning about a lot of um, the articles that came out based off of this specific study that were somewhat concerning. Um, kind of to your point, uh, the study didn't really like give a proper analysis of where these specific meetings were occurring uh, the quality of these specific meetings. And you made mention Stanford Med did this specific study. We don't know where their funding was coming from. And there's kind of like this implicit and explicit bias that's involved with the entire study altogether. Um, you know, were these meetings happening in treatment centers? Were these meetings happening out in public, uh, in general open groups that we now know of AA and NA to be in? Um, so all of these kind of made it somewhat concerning. And I think we both agree we're not sitting here saying, oh, AA is horrible or it doesn't work. I think we're sitting here saying we need to look at these types of um, studies and analyze them and scrutinize them a little bit more um, because it's somewhat misleading. Uh, there are other viable options out there. And this isn't a one hat fits all situation. Um, so I want to pass the ball over to you because I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think that, you know, to me, this isn't a question of the effectiveness of AA. Um, we know the effectiveness of it. It's it's helped millions of people stay right. sober. And, and But that's not the concern for me with the study is 
I think it's an outgrowth of what we're seeing when, because of the multiple pathways in different ways, that individuals, personalities, not principles, personalities are feeling that uh, AA and other 12 steps are under attack because mm -hmm. there are other options. And I certainly reject that opinion. And again, I'm not questioning the effectiveness of AA. It works really well, just like it says, it works if you work it. What right. else needs to be said? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think most of the evidence that we see, especially with like New York Times articles, even the study alone, to its merit, um, are indicating that uh, you know substance abuse treatment is not as efficacious as, say, these meetings. Um, there's a lot of efficacy with regards to going to meetings long term and actually physically working the program. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're, we both are in agreement. Um, and again, to the credit of this study, um, however. You know, I think there's something to be said about like meetings that happen in-house in treatment centers versus um, meetings that are happening outside in the community. Um, the, I think there's no significant studies that are happening, especially in the realm of for-profit treatment with regards to in-house meetings and their efficacy. Um, and so for people listening, for individuals reading these types of articles, I think it's valid to have this type of conversation to basically macroscopically think about, okay, where is this information coming from? And, you know, what types of meetings are they really analyzing these types of studies? When I look at what I have in front of me is a brief review. I have the study and then some of the conclusions. And I'm just going to read a quick paragraph. These are the conclusions. Again, um, what was done is a meta-analysis of 27 studies related to the effectiveness of AA and AA only. Um, and here's what the conclusion is, that AA and 12-step facilitation interventions produce similar benefits to other treatments on all drinking-related outcomes, except for continuous abstinence and remission, where AA 12-step facilitations are superior. Mm -hmm. AA and 12-step facilitation also reduces healthcare costs. Clinically implementing one of these proven manualized AATSF interventions is likely to enhance outcomes for individuals with AUD while producing health economic benefits. That makes perfect sense. 100%. And I think that's probably something that was already known that this research, you know, just kind of verify. So it's, the question is not about the research necessarily. It's about the interpretation of it. Right. hundred um, percent. Especially here and now in the times where things like harm reduction are, are having such great movement. Um, I, I just read a study last week talking about psilocybins and all of this experimental um, experimentation that they're doing with uh, uh, strains of psilocybins, marijuana, specifically CBD, high enriched CBD, as opposed to the THC uh, strains of marijuana. There's so many different avenues um, that are being explored right now. So um, that kind of goes to the point that we were trying to get to before. It's not a one fits one size fits all type situation. There's many different paths to the same ocean pretty much. And the, the study itself um, really is just saying, hey, hey, this works. But the funny thing about it is AA World Services didn't call for this study. Right. Um, you know, I don't think that they're going to argue about the the results, but they didn't call for the study. So it isn't as if they felt that it was unnecessary. They've always wanted to, and it's in their traditions, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, to not work with professionals unless it's in a meeting. You know, their goal is one thing, to mm 
to help the alcoholic stay sober. Right. Yeah. Um, and more and I, people will seek um, community solutions to uh, enter recovery. And AA is the most common for, for alcoholism um, than enter treatment. We know in the treatment world, mm-hmm. especially with the changes, people that I was seeing inpatient 20 years ago are outpatient now. So the needs are significantly greater than somebody who can go to a manualized intervention Mm -hmm. of of 12-step facilitation. And with continued AA, they have greater needs than just sobriety. And AA is not designed to to deal with that. and And that's not their goal. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much validity to everything you just mentioned. And then as a practicing therapist, I mean, I think for all of our clients, guiding them to social supports and social support services. I think maybe this study was geared to be able to validate that whole recommendation. Um, and, and looking at it from the inpatient model versus the outpatient model, um, I think a lot of individuals that are coming from the inpatient realm are looking for a study like this to be able to validate support groups and like sort of verify you know, the aftercare planning um, especially as they're transitioning from inpatient to outpatient level of care. Um, I can attest the same thing, um, you know, with regards to working inpatient and then transitively working, you know, the PHP Florida model step down programming and then working fully as a private practitioner. Our clients are constantly looking for the, the reasoning, the rationale behind the, why am I doing this? Why is this being recommended to me? Um, because I know most clients will often say, I feel like I'm being force-fed this information, force-fed this aftercare plan that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and maybe that is the, the core of this specific study. Uh, maybe it's just to provide that sort of evidence behind it so that there is no more why, there is no more questioning. We can just look at the study and say, this is why it is. Um, but I, I often feel like while talking to our clients, while working with people, um, they're also looking for other options. Um, and I think that's kind of the reason why I keep <laughs> reiterating yeah. this point is because um, I feel like for so many years, it's just been, okay, you're in treatment, you're leaving treatment. This is the only option for you uh, for your aftercare plan. And I think here and now with the times where we are with evidence, with science, with um, all the options that are there, it may be a good time, a good opportunity to say, okay, well, this is the study and this is what AA and NA have to offer. However, there's X, Y, and Z other options. Choose which one best fits your lifestyle, your personality, your perspective. Um, I think that's kind of our role as well. I think the, when we look at this study and the results, it's a laser focus of the study. It's AA only, not NA, not any of the other 12-step, um, 12-step programs that we know help individuals it's strictly aa and it's saying aa works and it works a little better in some cases i get that but when you compare aa to treatment it's like comparing me exercising to me getting physical therapy 100 percent. that's a beautiful um, exercise is great and it helps but if i need physical therapy my exercise needs to be guided right so treatment is like that guiding and we don't really have data on a lot of other pathways. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I think that is kind of the reason why on LinkedIn and social media, this type of study gets such an ab reaction from harm reductionists or from other pathways. 
or individuals representing those other pathways. I think, um, you know, having such a laser focus, as you mentioned, to specifically AA kind of narrows the scope with regards to things that we can offer our clientele. Um, and I, I, I would agree with you. I think um, more analysis needs to happen with regards to these other alternative pathways. Um, you know, it would be great if a study like this happened for a harm reductionist approach or for, you know, a psilocybin study or microdosing or whatever the case could be. Um, to be able to validate that type of um, pathway, um, just to give our clientele more options at the end of the day, because that's what it's all about. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, I see with this is certainly a 12-step route is something I'm going to recommend for anybody, um, simply because the accessibility, it mm -hmm. works, you know, if you put in the effort, and the fact that it doesn't cost them anything. And you know what? You're going to meet some good people, whether you buy into what, what the program says you should do, you're going to meet somebody who's concerned about your sobriety. So you, you'll have positive, uh, you know, positive impacts with that. But the one thing it doesn't do is 12-step programs don't meet somebody where they're at. Mm. They're not designed to. That's not a knock on them. It's just not how they operate. But you are expected to meet your sponsor where they say you need to be. You're supposed to meet the needs of the program as opposed to where they're at. And for many people, we've seen that's been great, but not for everybody. So to, to kind of portray it in the media or, or in the field as a panacea is, is incorrect. Yeah, I mean, I think that is um, a lot of our clients' um, disdain with regards to AA and even NA for that matter. I mean, is, is that they're being too directed with regards to how it should go. And conceptually, like the concept of autonomy is jeopardized in that type of dynamic. And I think individuals that are trying to figure this whole thing out, that's the last thing that they want to give up in that juncture. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, to your point, just reiterating, being able to give as many options as possible and allowing for that autonomy, that ego practice to actually happen so that they can decipher what's best for them will create more buy-in and therefore potentially create more efficacy long-term. We see that. And when you look at studies um, on what works for clients in treatment, now we're speaking specifically in treatment with Scott Miller's study, the majority of change occurs, it's extra therapeutic and it has nothing to do with what we do. 15% is placebo effect. And you know what? I love the placebo effect. If you think it works and it works, keep doing it. Right. I used to have a, a client, I worked in, in an OTP and I had a client who was taking a medication for alcohol use disorder. And he kept saying, man, this stuff is fabulous for cravings. There's nothing in the, the, in it that works on cravings. But what did I tell him? You should tell more people that. And he, he wasn't having cravings. So right. that was good enough for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we need to focus on, on things like that and, and, and look at the bigger picture uh, and, and have different studies on things. To me, it's important to meet people where you're at. To your point about autonomy, that's our primary in treatment ethical guideline, that there's client autonomy. Yeah. I think that getting back to my focus on credibility issues, there's a lot of that lacking in the field. Oh my God. Yes. We could go on for days on this. Um, 
the the ethics and the credibility are all swayed. Um, thinking about this specific study, I myself in group supervision talk a lot about with my mentors. Uh, this isn't even uh, my supervisees that I talk with, but we always talk about where is the study coming from, who's funding this operation, and what's the end goal purpose. Um, and that's not to knock the study. That's not to knock the background on, on this specific study or anything like that. But you you often have to wonder, okay, what is the end game of this? When you look at all of the semantics that are involved in treatment, the end game, of course, is always efficacy and for the client-centered approach so that they are able to live a fruitful life. However, here and now in this day and age, there's a lot of different variables that are involved in treatment. Um, and if you trace the money, um, it's often profits are being put in front of people to a point that it gets political, it gets involved with lobbyists, it gets involved with big pharma, it's very convoluted and disgusting. Um, so yes, <laughs> I think it's, it's very important to think about these specific avenues and in relation to the credibility of what's being offered and uh, put into media, because there might be a secondary malingering game. Yeah. And with credit to this study and the researchers and John Kelly uh, and Keith Humphreys are two incredible researchers with impeccable reputations. Uh, and I take that, you know, a lot of that, that for what it's worth, this study just stands on its own. It doesn't mm -hmm. need all the, the, the production, but it is, I, I hate to say it this way, but it is what it is. Let's not make it in the field what it isn't. It's the best for a group right. of individuals. Yeah. In our certification uh, process for individuals, I need to get a very small writing sample, right? You know, documentation is, is in TAP 21 as an important competency. So I want to see if someone can write um, really objectively and things. And so we do short answer questions. And one mm -hmm. of them involves an individual who's, it says to the clinician, I'll do anything to stay sober. I'll do anything to my recovery except AA or NA because they're religious based and I don't want to go. And how would you respond to this individual? Without hesitation, 80% of the results I get spend way too much time saying to this individual, let me educate you on the 12 steps. Let me tell you that they're spiritual, not religious. Let me do that. And I always ask, who's that for? Mm -hmm. The minute Jane Doe or John Doe says, I don't want to do it, the first question should always be, well, what, what would you do? What would right. you like to do? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that circles back to the autonomy of, of the entire um, exchange there. Because um, our treatment planning, I think clinically from our training, is not grounded in autonomy 100% of the time. Um, and I think even working in institutions whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, that gets swayed and it's given a misnomer of training. Um, but really it's acclimating to a specific system that the nonprofit or for-profit system abides by, right? Um, and whether that's insurance driven, whether that's the system driven, that's up to questioning. But I think that is the fundamental crux of why studies like these are so important. Um, because they give us a groundwork to <clears throat> sort of frame our perspective, our vantage, and question, okay, where is this coming from? How can this be useful to our clientele if and when it's needed um, based off of what they deem is appropriate for themselves? 
So, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think there's a lot of validity again uh, to everything that we've talked about so far. <clears throat> it's just a matter of individualizing our treatment and definitively meaning that because uh, that's often a, a, a term yeah. point. It, it's our relationship with that individual. That's, that's kind of, I forgot that point. The, with the, the Miller study is 30% of changes from our relationship with that individual and how uh, how that therapeutic relationship is. And we cannot necessarily base that on any path that we took to recovery if that's what, if we have a, a recovery history of our own. It's really meeting that person where they're at and helping them move through. Right. Seeing the difference between what where we view their problem and how they how they view their problem, or even how they what they identify as a problem. Yeah, um, I mean, I think all of that is so true, and it's paramount because all of these systems that we engage with shape exactly the dire- the direction and trajectory that we put our clients on. Um, and even in a in a realm of private practice, I think having a free for all open framework, we're still abiding by some sort of trajectory that we put our clients on based off of our specific practice. So our lens is completely tainted by whatever it is that we're trained by, however, whatever we're exposed with. Um, And I think all of that needs to become in in the limelight uh, so that we can evaluate it neutrally and then apply a non-biased approach to all of our treatment planning for our client's sake. I was recently having a conversation with a colleague in California, and he said something to me that they're working on that just blew me away in how simple it was and how it hasn't really been been thought of before. He said, why is it important to identify a specific pathway for somebody? Why can't you pick a little of this and a little of that, that, you know what, I'm going to go to my faith community, but I'm going to do this as well. And instead of saying, well, this is what I'm going to do and just follow those branches. Let somebody decide to branch out whatever way they see fit. Yeah, I mean, I think that eclectic type approach is probably going to be what's most effective. Um, and I think it comes down to a, a, a billable inquiry at that point, because I don't think insurance would really abide by that type of thing. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to. I think the system is designed as such so that you can't necessarily do what's in the best interest of the client all the time because it becomes paperwork. And then it also becomes, we can't get reimbursed for it. How can we possibly provide it? Right. Um, and I think that is kind of the integrated medical model that most of these umbrella programs are trying to accomplish in a billable format. Granted, whether they offer that specific service to a T or not is again, up for discussion, but Um, I think that was fundamentally the beauty of what the Florida model sort of was going after. Um, But then, of course, along the way, it just got tainted and destroyed. And we are where we are with that. But um, yeah, I think at its core, that is a beautiful idea. Um, Being able to do it efficaciously and still remain a profitable service um, is still a conundrum to most of us. When, when you look at the results of the study and, and the focus is on abstinence, mm-hmm. we also have to realize that abstinence is not everybody's goal. Exactly. And if you want to just look at success, treatment success with abstinence, OTPs are amazing for long-term abstinence, yeah. but yet they're thrown under the bus for so many reasons. And the, 
instead of uh, saying, look at it for the people that this helps. Look at how it helps. Yeah. But I mean, to that point, I think the epidemic is such right now that that's starting to be looked at, really scrutinized and implemented. Like, I feel like the ACA and the APA are probably having this discussion now um, with regards to how we're gauging efficacy here and now in the throes of the epidemic being the way that it is on top of being in the pandemic. Um, And I think this is going to be the tipping point um, with regards to how we look at things, how we evaluate, and even the way we define things like abstinence. Um, Because I think everything right now is just completely in in question and how we function even is is ever-changing. And it's hard to create solid data on quality of life, right? We know that one of the goals of of recovery is just to improve their quality of life as they see fit. And other than client satisfaction and surveys like that, it's very difficult to measure. Um, Whoever can create a, 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 you know, an algorithm to measure that is going to be, you know, very wealthy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so Um, subjective too. So it's like my version of betterment is very different from everyone else's version of betterment. So I think that subjectivity and being able to quantify that is what creates the confusion. Um, But yeah, to your point, anyone who creates that is going to be a very wealthy human being. And whatever way someone chooses to go and whatever they decide is successful for them is really Mm. what matters in the big picture. Um, But it's looking at their recovery capital and seeing what that kind of, how that drives, which may be the best route for them to go, um, where they have the strength and support to pursue a, a specific path or, you know, pathway. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, Again, I, I looked at this and it really jumped to me because the study, because everyone was saying how wonderful it is. And it's just saying what we've known. It's putting an uh, evidence base to things that we've known. Right. But you're again, when you're comparing, uh, you know, they throw 12 step facilitation in there. 12 step facilitation programs are really like preparation for 12 steps. Yeah. Um, in publicly funded organizations, that can create an issue. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's happened in in the prison systems. We've seen uh, an individual in a substance use program and in prison didn't want to go to AA and won a lawsuit against the Department of Corrections. Didn't mm-hmm. fit their religious beliefs or, or another reason, but it, it showed that. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is these private individuals, and we've talked uh, kind of off the record about somebody who believes in a certain pathway because it's their way and has the money to fund it. Yes. Um, creates you know this view that it's that they're doing something spectacular and unusual but they're you know it's almost the bastardization of the 12-step programs which as a purist for the 12-step programs um i struggle with that and i know that that's maybe that's the way things are going and people want to are talking about difficulties with the traditions um you know how do you put a face on recovery without uh violating anonymity well there's a lot of ways to do that (laughs) Um, but i'm a purist with it and it it simply just works for people um and studies like this are important for others but to me i don't in my views it didn't change anything in my views um it just kind of supported what i had seen in in practice 
I would agree with that sentiment. I mean, I think this type of study just makes something that was intangible, tangible. Um, and to your point, I mean, I think this is all information we already were well aware of. I mean, working in treatment, we're all fully aware that AANA even work. Um, and there's no reason to question it. I mean, we never had reason to question it because we just knew the efficacy was there. And we knew that clients that previously went through the entire step work and everything like that, had a sponsor, had the ability to maintain long-term sobriety. Um, so for me, when I read this study, I was basically just saying, okay, well, this is just taking something we already knew, making it tangible to be able to use as evidence. But um, to that greater point, talking about credibility, looking at how that whole thing, how this whole type of study is funded, how it's bat- being backed, um, and the people that are engaged with this specific study, what their personal perspectives are regarding AA, um, that goes back to the first point that we made here about internal and external, implicit and extern- explicit uh, bias. Um, this is essentially reading something from a lens of something that's pro something, right? So um, we're definitely reading something that is definitely biased uh, in a positive format. And granted, maybe it's valid here because AA works and we all know it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also brings in the question, okay, if someone that was not staunch with regards to AA or NA for that matter, if they were to come look at this specific type of study and have an ab reaction to it and or decide that they want to do their own independent study, would they come up with differing results? Um, and I think that's something that we all need to have this conversation about um, because it happens in everything that we read. Uh, I, I just put up to take a look at some of the other uh, yeah. headlines and you talked about bias and there is a negative bias in some of these headlines as well. Filter Magazine was clearly unimpressed and they said, so Alcoholics Anonymous is proven to work after all? Not so fast. You know, I think that's a little unfair. <laughs> but I, I know it's the headline is to, to attract readers. But even yeah. the Cochrane Review website, when they wrote about this study, says new Cochrane Review finds Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step facilitation programs help people to recover from alcohol problems. Um, but And many of the other ones, some public radio headlines said the same thing. Um but the only yeah. the only negative one that I really saw was that one from Filter Magazine. And yeah. everything else is pretty much down the middle besides the Stanford one. Yeah. Um, psychology Today, new evidence on AA, new research demonstrates that AA works for many. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Um, the New York Times has a good has a good headline, and I read the article, and it was a pretty good article about it. it it's just it's how people interpret. Mm-hmm. facts yeah. in the study and it's it's you know numbers don't lie but people can lie about numbers exactly exactly and uh to me when i read that filter magazine title i thought that okay this is probably clickbait like some of some of their marketing department definitely did that intentionally so that more people would click the link um but to your point yeah i think a lot of media tried to skirt the middle line there um and not be too rash with being positive about it um, which was nice to see. Um, but I think the study itself was very directive. Taking it a step back from that and looking at a much bigger kind of picture, it there's something that I think that doesn't happen often in this field that we need to kind of do more of, and that is t- 
take a critical look at things mm -hmm. that were told and and maybe published. And critical doesn't necessarily mean bad. You know, you're gonna you're gonna trash it, but look at the positives and negatives, and look at it from a as an objective standpoint. We don't do that really well. Um, it's kind of a, a microcosm of our society. If if I believe it, it's perfect, and if I don't, it's trash. Yeah, I mean, on I, both sides. Hundred percent. I mean, I think the polarization of our society bleeds into everything else. So our profession is absolutely a microcosm of what's happening in our society. And I think all of these specific studies, they're not inherently supposed to be polarized. I think we're conditioned based off of everything else that we see. Therefore, it bleeds directly into our work. Um, that falls in line with literally everything that we do. Um, yeah. So I think that's such a strong, valid point. And I think further analysis on everything that everyone reads, regardless of what it is, whether it's regarding this field, whether it's regarding the news, whether it's regarding any type of media outlet, whatever, absolutely needs to happen just for our own mental sanity. And Brave is the researcher who publishes something that shows what they believe is inaccurate. Exactly. Um, and the, the most recent experience I had with that is Dr. Kathy Carroll at Yale, who is a big proponent of of CBT did a study on the effectiveness of CBT with individuals using buprenorphine and found that it works for some, right. not for others. But at the beginning, when you're doing an intake and getting somebody started, you can't tell who that person is. So I, I was impressed by that. Um, and um, I, she was ultimately going to come and talk about that study on a podcast, but pandemic kind of made things crazy for her. And, and I was really impressed with that because she said it changed it it changed what I believe yeah. because I saw something different. Right, but I mean, fundamentally, isn't that what we're all trying to do? We're trying to evaluate what it is that we believe in, and really get to the crux of it to find that existential like meaning uh, in in that which is that we're trying to profess, or in that which is that we find value in. Um, so to me, that is a beautiful experience. And I think experientially, that is something that we all should strive for, regardless of what it is that we believe in. You know, and if somebody tells me, a client tells me that something that they're doing is working, keep doing it. Exactly. You know, if you're not harming yourself or anybody else. Right. Um, I, I remember years ago when the study came out that nicotine actually helped with uh, psychotic symptoms for individuals with schizophrenia. And it, it made perfect sense when I saw how many individuals I was working with were smoking right. and saying, you know, it's a, it's a trade-off. Um, like I certainly wasn't going to say, oh, keep smoking or try smoking, but I understood why someone did so much, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, circling back to one of the points that you made earlier, it's, it's all about whatever makes that client feel as though they have autonomy over their direction of their treatment whatever they feel as though works for them, maintaining the framework of their free will, um, and then also providing all of these options um, so that they can direct the rest of their trajectory for their treatment. I think that is the core foundation of everything that we talked about so far. And it's important for clinicians and, and administrators in this field to question what they're told by anybody. What's the data? Um, you know, if you go into, you know, that's a work on Capitol Hill, and I can't think of the individual's office, but when you walk in, there's a sign. It says, in God we trust. Everybody right. else bring data. 
And, and that's yeah. what's important. Let's see it. If you're telling me this works, show me how, why it works. Yeah, absolutely. I'll buy into it when I see something that's not just an opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Not only offering the data, but going back to the points that we brought up here, being able to like, analyze it um, and really fully digest it so that either you can come up with your own non-biased approach or perspective on the data that's being offered. And then in practice, let your clients be your sounding board. Um, if they feel as though, you know, whatever you read and you digested and you produced and offered to them is not working for them. I mean, use that as data and, and real life experience to be able to pass it on forward because this is a ripple effect and what we model with our clients will emulate in our society. So when I came into this field 30 years ago, it was one model. It was you go to detox, whether you needed it or not. Then you go inpatient for 30, 28 days, and then you go to a partial, and then you get maybe outpatient and you boot it out the door to a 12-step. But yep. there was not really a connection in between. And they wondered why that didn't work so well, because it, there's no one-size-fits-all. Right. Or what I my first goal, that's what we were taught, but I worked in a, in a uh, therapeutic community. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't tell me that wasn't the right thing to do, even though it didn't work for most people. <laughs> And so yeah. now if I was doing the things that I was trained to do, I'd lose all my credentials because I'd be <laughs> up on ethical, you know, investigations. Yeah, absolutely. I so, mean, look how far we've come in the field. Absolutely. So accept change, but it's okay to bring, you know, to ask for the data. Definitely. And I think it's encouraged. It's encouraging. And, and um, we had actually worked with a Yale researcher on developing an in-person training a couple of years ago on understanding research why it's important to read it uh and how to do that and it was uh, it 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 didn't gain a lot of traction mm -hmm. because people weren't as interested i guess what i find interesting as a nerd doesn't always work out um but i think it's important uh you know the, it, it's a responsibility it's an ethical responsibility to stay up on what's happening in the field yeah, I think that's the motif within every field is that we need to stay up to par, up to date with the research that's actively happening. Because um, things are ever changing every single day. New information is coming out with regards to old ways that we used to practice. Um, and it's important for us to question it because our clients' lives are at stake every single day. Um, so, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with that point more. So, as we close out, first of all, I want to say people don't email me and say we were throw in 12 steps under the bus because we're not we're not no point did we say that we agree in the effectiveness of 12 steps Absolutely. um but i know people will interpret you know things a certain way Definitely. but as we close we look at it's important to question what we're told um and look at things from an objective perspective and we it's very difficult because we operate so much from the subjective um you know ask questions and don't be afraid to challenge kind of convince conventional thinking in this field. Yeah. And for all those that are in the field, I mean, encouraging that concept of challenging what currently exists. If we do not challenge the status quo, we cannot further this field. Um, so, I mean, I think it's very important and it's okay to be wrong, even with a challenge. I mean, I speak with my mentors every single day about, challenging the way that we operate with substance abuse and substance use disorder treatment. Um, and I'm wrong three-fourths of the time, but I'm still trying, right? So 
I think that is kind of the self growth in this whole thing. Uh, it reevaluates yourself, your perspective, what exists, why it exists, the system. Um, and I think it's just important for your own knowledge and growth. So I would definitely encourage every single one to challenge everything that is going on. I agree. That's a good way to close. Cap, I want to say thanks for joining me. I appreciate all the time. Um, and it's always an interesting conversation. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me.